Well, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for coming out today. Uh, welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. And I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. Today's a very special episode. We're here live at the TomTom Tom Civic Innovation Festival in Charlottesville, Virginia. It's a fantastic gathering that looks at innovations in arts, in environment, technology, and civic life. And I encourage people to check out tomtomfest.org for more information. By way of background for our live audience, An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. And you're about to hear some of them right now. And if you don't believe me, check out our past episodes with guests like Pete Buttigieg, Tashara Jones, and Congressman Ben McAdams. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Today, everyone on our panel is a New Deal leader, and I'm grateful that you all made the trip to come here. First, uh, we have Oxford, Mississippi Mayor Robin Tannehill. She's a proud old Miss grad. She served as a, the city's tourism director and alderman before being elected to mayor in 2017. She's working on a number of issues that we're going to hear about today, including town-gown relations, affordable housing, infrastructure needs, and proactive planning as Oxford grows quickly. She also launched an initiative to grow girls' leadership and bring a new generation into civic life. Next to her is Shelby County, Tennessee Mayor Lee Harris. He was elected mayor in 2018 after serving in the Tennessee Senate and the Memphis City Council. As mayor, he's focused on serving underserved neighborhoods, expanding early childhood education, and reforming the criminal justice and public transportation systems. Lee was born and raised in Memphis before attending Morehouse College and Yale Law School. Last but not least is Norfolk City Council member Andrew McClellan. Andrea is a UVA grad, so, uh, so wahoo wah, and congratulations on the national championship this week. Uh, so she gets, she gets some bragging rights up here today. Uh, she was elected in 2016 after uh, years of serving on essentially every board and commission in the Norfolk area, uh, and putting her uh, Wharton Business School degree to use It's both serving Fortune 500 companies and starting businesses. And she's a national leader in community resilience and climate adaptation. And then finally, I'm Ryan Coonerty. I'm a UVA law alum, uh, so it's nice to be back in Charlottesville, uh, who served as mayor and now county supervisor from Santa Cruz, California. And like our panelists, I'm a New Deal leader. So jumping right in, I want you to think back to that decision of when you decided to first run for office, uh, whether it's your current office or the first time you ran, thinking at home about people in the audience or, uh, or people at home listening who are thinking, Things, things aren't looking great for our country and I need to get engaged. So make the pitch that with all your talent and all the opportunities you had, uh, public service was the way to go. Well, it, I, I thought it was then and I still agree it is. And I think that that's a positive step. I had served um, on probably every board in Lafayette County in Oxford, Mississippi. I'd been the director of tourism, the president of the Chamber of Commerce, the president of the Arts Council, president of PTAs. And honestly, I think that service on those boards and learning to build consensus was probably the best training that I had for going into public service. And that's what it is. It is serving the public. I work for 25,000 people in Oxford, Mississippi. And I think it's important that I answer to those people and that we 
we are transparent and that's really why I ran I wanted to make sure that our government was transparent that we were letting lots of voices be included um, I was an alderman for four years and during that time realized I needed to be in the other chair to really be able to pull off the things I wanted to do and you know I want it to be that public service is still a notable and respectable calling and I believe it is a calling probably my fellow panelists here would agree and and mayor Tannehill, just real quick what was it like knocking on that first door or making that first fundraising call well fundraising's not my favorite thing <laughs> but um i knocking on that first door i was very anxious i was i didn't know i just didn't know what i, I was running against a 16 year incumbent numerous people had said oh why don't you wait till the next time he's just gonna do 20 years and i thought well he seems like he retired 10 years ago but <laughs> i'm just saying so um, I, I knocked on that first door with really, you know, not knowing what I was going to get. And I loved it. Door to door campaigning was so eye opening for me just to get to have talks on other people's turf. You know, people tell you stuff standing at their own front door that they're not necessarily going to say to you in a board meeting. So. You see your city in a real different way. You do. You so do. Lee, you're a fifth generation uh, Memphis, Memphis, Memphisian? Memphian. 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 Uh, tell me about, uh, so you're from, you know, you're, you're emerged out of the community, but what was it like knocking on that first door or running for that, running for office? Uh, well, I think politics and government is really tough work. And I think that's why at least I gravitated toward it because I think it's really the toughest work you can do. I think that everybody is, um, uh, equal, uh, and it's all about kind of building coalitions, built, expanding and collaborating. Everybody holds their vote sacred and they have to be persuaded. You can't order somebody to vote for you. So it's really the toughest work uh, out there in my view and I think it's very different from other kinds of work, particularly in business where you know there's a hierarchy uh, and everybody's not equal and you can kind of tell people what to do. So politics and government is not like that. You really got to be persuasive. It's really challenging. So knocking on the first door, making the first fundraising call, it's real tough. I think my first fundraising call for my last race was a real, real close friend of mine, someone I've known for years and years and years and I called her and said, yeah, well, you know, please give me a donation. I'm about to run for Shelby County mayor, uh, which is a big office in, in our area. You know, Shelby County is the largest county, 950,000 citizens. And she said, well, let me think about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, and it just goes on and on and on, on like that. I mean, it's a numbers game. You just have to work really hard. But I, I did it because I think you've got to have people in public office who are capable uh, and are, are, are willing to lend their talents to, to politics and government uh, and, and people who are willing to sacrifice. I mean, I think everybody in public service has is, is sacrificed a whole lot. And, uh, and you just got to have people that are, are willing to be advocates on behalf of, of others uh, and use their, you know, God-given gifts uh, to do that. Now, I was reading accounts of your race, uh, your most recent race for mayor, and uh, it got pretty ugly uh, with your opponent using some racially charged mail and all that stuff. And uh, but your reaction was just to stay above it all. How do you how did you separate yourself from some of the nastiness that you saw on the streets? And then I'm, I'm glad you ended up winning because that's always the best. Uh, that's always the best revenge. So um, I've been around for a while. City Council, State Senate now, Shelby County Mayor. So in elected office for the last eight years. And um, yeah, it got pretty nasty and racially charged. I, I, you know, I don't know. I never considered uh, going negative. I never considered, you know, really kind of, um, you know, 
making the race even darker uh, than it was. So, you know, it's just not my style of doing things. I think you got to ha have people that can work with everybody and it's kind of looking to what does it look like to govern and how do you bring people in. And so, you know, if you do that kind of thing, it's really tough to work with others and to bring people in. So I didn't want that to be my, my kind of brand in our community. And it's not my brand in our community. So, you know, I, I never considered it. And at this point, I got pretty thick skin. I think everybody in the elected office for a while has really thick skin, even our families. I mean, my, my wife, maybe in that first race, was um, troubled. But by the time I got to my third race, <laughs> you know, we, 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 we're, we're pretty, we're okay. We can deal with anything at this point, I think. Yeah. And Andrea, you came from business, uh, which is, you know, it's increasing, but it's not the traditional path that people sort of come into, into politics. So what, what made your decision to, to enter elected life? So I was in business um, for you know Fortune 500, two startup companies, and then I took some time off and played mom for our three kids. And that's when I served on lots of boards and commissions and used my business skills in that capacity. Um, I got started in politics by uh, helping others run for office. So when I knocked on the door for myself, it wasn't the first time I'd been knocking doors for probably about eight years and raising funds for everybody else running for office, which was really helpful. But having a business background and running for office, I think is really great. Um, having a, an entrepreneurial background really uh, molds well. Uh, you know, as candidates, we're really the product or the service. Um, our, our voters are our, our buyers and our donors are our investors. And if we wrote a business plan and we executed on it, I had to figure out what my brand was in the marketplace, what, how did I differentiate myself? I ran against a 16-year incumbent as well. Um, and similar to Robin, I felt like um, it, it, he hadn't done anything wrong. He just hadn't done anything and was also similarly told to wait my turn and uh, I took a gamble and it was it was worth it and I never ran against him I ran for the future of Norfolk Virginia and that really resonated with the voters um, and it was also beautiful because it was nonpartisan so I received votes from both sides of the aisle and people just wanted to see a change so c coming back around can you talk about we're watching increasing polarization and division across this country certainly at the national level increasingly at the state level um, how do you try to stop those trends from coming to your community and starting to, because uh, we all at the local level, you, you can appeal across the spectrum, but increasingly uh, people are picking teams and putting up walls and not listening to the other side. So what are you doing in each one of your communities to make sure that, uh, that both government has done well and that the civic discourse uh, is maintained? I think, it, I think it's uh, the biggest challenge that we all face, anybody who's in elected office, regardless of local, state, or federal level, um, that divisiveness. I, you know, potholes don't have an RRD on them. Uh, you know, uh, fixing our sidewalks, um, flooding in the city of Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, it's pervasive. Whether or not you believe in climate change, you're going to get your car stuck on Princess Anne Road. And so you want your elected officials to do something about it. So if you really address the local issues, I think it's a lot easier to get past that um, and, uh, you know, be very collaborative in, in nature. So um, I think this is the, uh, it's the hardest and it's the easiest place to govern. Lee? Um, I agree with all that. I think, you know, we try as best we can not to personalize, you know, the debate and try to really um, assume the best of intentions from political opponents. Uh, I always think that everybody who's in public service is really talented and has made great sacrifice themselves and their family. Uh, and so they didn't get into this thing <laughs> because they didn't have the best of intentions. So if you come to the debate with that, it's very hard to attack and to personalize things. So I, you know, you, you don't do it uh, if you can keep that in mind. The other, the other thing that I'll just say that is kind of 
have aligned with what you're talking about is really attacks on the media. I think we see those things. That's growing. Uh, and I always try to remember in politics and government that it's tough for the media to do their jobs. Uh, it's tough for them to uncover what's happening in government. They don't have the same kind of access as elected officials and bureaucrats. They just don't have it. Uh, and so it's easy to, it's so easy for me to criticize them because they won't know 100% of the story because I'm inside and everybody works for Shelby County government and they're outside trying to turn over the stones and trying to figure things out. So I always try to remember that. And that makes me uh, stop and think you, you can't criticize them because they're working really, really hard to try to you know, present information to the public, uh, you know, things that are important. So, you know, I, I think you're right. This is a huge issue, but we've got to have more folks in office that are not personalizing things and not attacking the media and really undermining the debate and making people less uh, feel that there's less credibility associated with our politics. Mayor Tannehill. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm, as you asked the question, was thinking about, so, so how do we change that? You know, as local leaders, we are really on the front lines of all of these different debates and conversations. And so, so much of how the conversation goes is dictated by our first responses. And like you said, you never considered going negative when your campaign opponent was. And, I, you know, we get that with everyday things. Those potholes don't have an R or a D bomb, but boy, they can make people mad, can't they? <laughs> and so, you know, in piles of leaves who knew how mad people could get over leaves that aren't picked up but I think that we can control the conversation and also people second guess everyone's motives and I, I try to make a habit of assuming that people on the other side of the conversation are coming to the same um, the same place that I am that we are all trying to make our community better we all have the same end goal in mind we have been having a lot of public meetings where we and we've had them at different times of the day we had an alcohol ordinance that was very contentious. We have 31 bars in our downtown area, and we have a lot of underage drinking in a college town, as you can imagine. And so we had over 20 hours of public meetings for bar owners, citizens, parents, what have you, at different times of the day in different locations so that people really got to have their say. And I realized it started changing the dialogue because people felt listened to. They didn't feel like they were being dismissed. They didn't feel like their voice didn't matter. So I think respectful conversation, one thing I have to concentrate on a lot is listening to understand, not listening to have a quick comeback. <laughs> and I think that that's important in our role is listening to understand. So, And what do you all do? Because there's, you know, one political opponent or one gadfly can sort of hijack the whole conversation for, for both you and the community. So what are you doing to make sure that everyone's voice uh, gets heard and that the, the conversation doesn't get hijacked. Do you have any tricks for folks? Well, I'm not sure I have any tricks, but I, you know, I have found that it's better not to engage that one person than you, you lend them your credibility when you engage with them. So just continuing to tell your story, staying on message, continuing to point out the positive things that are going on in all of our communities, really, it just doesn't allow them the platform to continue to criticize. Y'all got any ideas? Oh, I think that I think she's right. I mean, to the extent you can cut them off, which is which is bad, and, and not engage with them once you've identified them as, like you say, just a rabble rouser. I think that's that's great. The other the other piece is is continue to tell your story to the community because the community will rally around if you explain to them why the issue is important. Right now in Shelby County, for example, we're trying to build a new juvenile detention facility. Right. 
That is a tough thing to message. But one of our things is, is our current facility is not built for rehabilitation. It's built for detention only. And the short of it is we need a smaller facility so that, you know, fewer kids go into the system in the first place. And we need to get this done because the, the old facility is decades old and the kids don't have windows. And, you know, I could go down the list, right? They're, they're, they're trapped. Uh, but that's all. That could be easily messaged as a jail for kids. Uh, but, you know, when, when we were faced with opponents that messaged uh, our initiative as a jail for kids, we went out into the community directly, went to the National Urban League, NAACP, and, and unions, and took them on tours and told them what the issue were. And all those folks endorsed, uh, you know, our position. All those folks came out and rallied uh, to our position. It's still tough. It's still an uphill battle. But the point is, if you've got an issue, uh, there are sober minds out there. There are people that will listen. You just got to really communicate and work hard to take your issue and directly engage the community. I would just say communicate, communicate, communicate. I think I think 80% of our problems in government or business for that matter could be fixed if we did a better job of communicating. And if we get a little lazy there and we let the social media mavens get involved, um, they they can steal the, the, the story and we need to be out front and, and in front of that. Um, and so it's our biggest challenge. You know, How do you market and communicate your city, your initiatives? And I don't know about you all, but I don't have enough hours in the day. I, don't, I write all my own social media posts. I, I can't keep on top of it all. But um, it's, it's just an expected element of being in public service right now. And do you think, I mean, is, are you looking for new tools? Because one of the challenges, government is so structured, right? You have your meeting times. Everyone gets their certain amount of minutes. There's a presentation. Uh, and then you, but then you also have the free-for-all on social media and, in, and, in, and a decreasing local coverage by press uh, or press of coverage by the local press. Um, so... Are there new tools that you're using? Are there, I mean, it sounds like community meetings. It sounds like other ways. Is there new ways that we can have a better conversation, at least at the local level? So I, I actually think um, it's, it's the old tools that we need to bring back. Um, I started something called Engage Norfolk uh, right after coming into office. Um, I saw a huge interest and in, um, people got really engaged after um, this November 2016 election of ours. Um, and I heard a lot of, of folks who were my contemporaries saying, oh my gosh, I can't sit on the couch anymore. I've got to get involved, but I have no idea how to do it. And I don't know where to go. And you know, after having served on a million boards, I thought, well, I can give you 25 things right off the top of my head. But they didn't know where to go. And so Engage Norfolk was really just this huge civic fair. We had a thousand people show up after organizing this in two and a half weeks. We had all of our local elected officials there. We had um, workshops on how to run for office, how to uh, apply for a border commission, how to work with your civic league. So it was just old school getting out, touching people, not touching people, <laughs> shaking hands, but you know, touching their hearts and, and trying to do that. So that's not really the fancy, innovative you know, app that you've got on your phone, but I think sometimes we need to get out from behind our screens and in front of people, see them eye to eye. Yeah, no, I've I've found uh, when I get these blistering emails or social media attacks that if I, I pick up the phone and I just call the people instead of trying to respond, all of a sudden the temperature comes down and people have a hard time screaming at your face or directly. Right. Uh, but if you if you go old school and just make make them talk to you, that's that's always a good way. Yeah, no, I'm I'm pretty hardcore old school. I mean, we certainly have all the the more innovative platforms, and we're always messaging there. But we don't we don't debate. <laughs> 
<laughs> through those platforms. So uh, Shelby County Office of Mayor, we don't engage in debates and around issues other than one on one or in person in real time. Uh, so I think that's really important. So you know we have to make sure we externally program as much as possible. Problem is, I can I always say to everybody around me uh, at the office that you know we can't have meetings with just insiders and these kinds of folks all day and talk to each other <laughs> about what we think. Right? We need to be external as often as possible. And so that's the traditional kind of external uh, initiatives like the town halls and and uh, attending other people's events. But it, but but it's also an effort to make sure we educate the public as much as possible. So we want to listen, but we also want to teach. And so right now we're in the budget cycle. And so we'll take our budget on the road, uh, not so that I can take a lot of input because <laughs> right. I, you know, I want to make sure that I do my job, which is to craft the budget and so forth, but so that I can t- tell the public what is actually in the budget so they can be prepared to engage in the process if they choose. And not just the budget process for this year, but for next year and the next mayor and on down the line. We've got to make sure that there are people out there that are as informed as possible because that's a great counterbalance to the people that just kind of, you know, um, shout, uh, you know, on the, on the social media and so forth. You've got a gr- group of people that are out there that know what's going on, you know, they'll combat some of that. So we're always working on that. Well, we, we are, on the one hand, more connected than we've ever been with social media and everyone has a phone in their hand and that kind of thing, which leads us to be about as disconnected as we've ever been because we're not having the conversations very often. And and so I think that those one-on-one conversations, like you're saying, are very important and communication. We, have, we recently had a water main break and had a declarable water notice. If you want to know how many friends you don't have, declarable water notice. And um, one of the things that we realize is that most of our communication is through social media, through emails, that kind of thing. And there are a lot of folks with a landline at home who didn't get the word immediately. And we're very upset about it and rightfully so. And so we have just put a new communication method in place that allows us to do landline calls and emails and text messages. And people now get to choose a level of information they would like to get, whether they want emergency only or whether they would like to know every time a street closes. So we're, we're trying to we're trying to tell the story. Perfect. Now, uh, I think that's a good uh, segue into, um, you know, it's not always super fun community meetings and everyone saying, how can I how can I roll up my sleeves and help? It can be a, a, it can be very difficult to be a leader publicly anytime, but especially in our world today. Talk about some of the challenges or a bad day that you all have uh, and how you uh, how you dealt with them and how you how you move on to keep to keep coming back and show up the next day and roll up your sleeves and go to work well keeping your eye on the ball for sure you know you can get lost in a lot of the criticism and a lot of the smaller facts surrounding what the end goal is um, for me it's my faith it's my family it's um, knowing where you know what where I find my um, my motivation and uh, it, it's important to surround yourself with people who support you and who can lift you up and who can say you know you should put your phone down <laughs> those kinds of those kinds of friends um, but it is it is important to be rooted in um, a solid group of people and surrounding yourself with people who understand all of the different issues sometimes we surround ourselves with people who just think like us and sometimes life starts to look kind of like a Facebook feed where you block out the voices that you don't agree with and all of a sudden you wonder why 
it's not very diverse because you've surrounded yourself with just folks that think just like you. So I think it's critical to keep, you know, different voices at the table, but also know, um, you know, where where the buck stops and and be able to lead others in a way that their voice is heard. And, you know, my girls' leadership program that we talked about, I think it's so important for us to start doing that with people at a younger age so that it's not folks who realize in their 40s that, hey, I'd like to be involved, but have always kind of had that goal in mind. Lee, talk about a bad, talk about a bad day, uh, and uh, how you got through it. Well, I'm in local government, so <laughs> local government. There are people that have really strong opinions about local government and what it does, and we're not really detached, right? Congress, you're a little bit detached, and you can kind of be insulated. It's not the same thing at the local government level. So, uh, you know, we have lots of bad days, and I think you know it's real tough to keep your energy up. I think all you can do is take your place, take yourself to you know why you got in in the first place. For me, it was a, it was that I believe government and politics is a way to change lives, and so I try to stay focused on that. Um, but it is hard when the messaging becomes distorted. It is hard when the conversation becomes dominated by, you know, some special interest group and, and so forth. And, um, it, you know, you just got to go back at it the next day. Uh, and so I try as best I can to lose sometimes and then try to rally, right? Try to return to that issue another another day. I'm working on juvenile justice reform, and there are really, really people with real, real strong opinions on that. Uh, and most of those opinions, taken their to their natural conclusion, mean don't do anything, right? And so, and so I'm not, you know, I'm not into this business to try to figure out how not to do anything. Uh, but that's easy enough to do, right? Because I got a hundred things on my plate, and I can abandon something. And, and, and that will be it. It will be abandoned and no, no one will work on it uh, again. But that's not what I'm in the business for. I'm in the business to accomplish things, to execute, to get things done, to change lives. Uh, and so I'd really try as best I can to, you know, when I lose, come back and say, no, no, we've, we've got to get something done. It is not enough to say, here's an argument. <laughs> and basically it means just no action. Yeah, thanks. I think, um, as Lee said, local government every day is a bit of a challenge. I, I actually think one of the challenges of local government is you've got to tell your friends and your neighbors um, something that they don't like. Uh, we have to raise your taxes or you're not going to get that rezoning. And you have to be able to see that person at the grocery store, or at church or in the kids parking lot. And it's tough. And it's it's I think it's the toughest job um, as a result. But I also say folks who come from local politics, if they decide to make a move up, um, they are going to be the best elected officials because they do understand constituent services in a way like no others. Uh, like, for example, this, this guy we know, Mayor Pete, who's running for president. Go Pete. Uh, a New Deal leader. I think he is so good because he has that local government executive experience. So I, I'd say that's that's a really strong thing. And, you know, we all have our struggles. And, you know, I, I have a lovely life now. My kids and my husband help a lot. But, you know, I think back to my mom, who was a single mom, never went to college, worked two or three jobs. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm so darn lucky where I am right now. Um, and there are a lot of constituents who have a really hard time just making ends meet. And so um, even though I might not get a bill passed um, at the end of the day you just got to keep everything in perspective it is a good uh, you do raise a good point about the the being able to face down I remember when I first got elected to city council one of my elementary school teachers didn't want this project in her neighborhood she showed up and she's like I knew you when you were little and I I need you to do this and this is my and I'm like I'm sorry that's like I you know I can't Uh, and uh, it's but it was 
you know, you gotta, you gotta be, there's nowhere to hide. In Congress, you can always say, oh, I'd love to do it, but the other party won't let me. Oh, I'd love to do it, but the president's gonna veto it, whatever. Local level, there's nowhere to hide. I think people really, though, you can earn somebody's respect by telling them no in a thoughtful way with the reason. And I've, I've had that actually, I've been surprised where people have said, you know, I really appreciate the way you handled that. I don't like your um, decision, but I have more respect for you because of the way you handled the situation. Yeah. I've found that too, but it's like six months later or a year later, you got to give them a little bit of time to. (laughs) Yeah, I think, um, I think it's really hard. I think constituents really believe that they're right on every single issue, uh, particularly at the local level and talking them out of it is almost a fool's errand. (laughs) Yeah, it's, It's just really hard. They know exactly what the asphalt truck should be doing, what the park maintenance guy should be doing, what the school teacher should be doing. Everything at the local government level, they are they think they're an expert on and so I, you know I think it's real hard I think the only thing I have tried in my career to do is to really be upfront and honest even through the campaign process I'm always very brutally honest about what I'm going in government to do and what the expectations should be you know it's the idea that I'm not going in as Superman I'm not going to save uh, the neighborhood I'm not going to save the city uh, I'm going in as a partner I'm going to partner with the neighborhoods I'm going to partner with the schools I'm going to partner with the city as long as the partners do their part I'm going to do my part and we're going to get something done, but it's going to be a collaborative effort. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm not Superman, <laughs> so I can't, you know, turn back time and, you know, make all these things happen. And uh, and I have, you know, m- the levers of power at my disposal are, are limited. So I'm honest about that. That helps. Robin, how do you say no to your constituents? Well, or, or you smile. Just, all <laughs> um, you know, I think, like you said, that's right. You learn. And, and I think just being transparent and open in discussion so that they see how the decision is arrived at as well is important. You know, the best thing, even when we're talking about the bad days, the hard days of local government, and it is, and, and it's because so many of our decisions affect people's daily lives. But that's also the positive. So many of our decisions affect people daily lives we can impact people's quality of life every single day whether it's a constituent whether it's an employee that works for one of our government bodies it is um, it is the opportunity to leave this place better than we found it every day and I think that there couldn't be a better job than knowing that that is what you're working for so moving on we looking at the federal level and you're seeing it's paralyzed or actually maybe even going in the wrong direction on things like climate change, on immigration, on, ju- on justice reform. Uh, what are you working on in your cities that, are, that you think might be able to be replicated in other places to start solving some of these problems that we're seeing uh, not, being, not being solved at the federal level? You know, cities can be little incubators for, for new ideas. Uh, what, 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 what are you seeing in your community that you hope can be translated to other places? Well, there, there are several things. You know, we, we are doing things on these small scales where, you know, and, and I, I so often see federal policies put in place and for grant programs and things. And for cities like in Memphis, perhaps, and Houston, Texas, and places that are large, those are very reasonable. But for Oxford, Mississippi, if you tell me that I still have to come up with 80% of the funding, 
we it's still a no and so we're seeing that in the opioid crisis money in infrastructure funds in lots of different things that don't allow us to be part of the solution a lot of times but you know from a public transportation issue to affordable housing issues that we are tackling at a local level without HUD funds, you know, things that we are trying to implement that I think are changing people's lives. It's giving them places to live. It's giving them public transportation in ways that um, only a local government can attack. And Oxford has grown quickly. Oxford uh, has grown quickly. Yes. yes. Uh, so how are you trying, because you're not just trying to accommodate the current growth you're trying to make it plan so for the future absolutely for the future so what are you doing to sort of think 20 years ahead? well we have just adopted a vision 2037 plan that incorporates a future land use map and a land development code and it has allowed us to think past what are we instead of doing project by project we now are planning for the future we have just partnered for the first time with the county and the university of mississippi to do a transportation plan together so that we all know what each other's plans are and we prioritize together and we are seeking federal and state funds together as well which gives us a much you know stronger voice as we solicit those build grants and um, so you know there are a lot of places that we have overbuilt and so in our land development code we are now requiring um, multi-use development so that everyone in the county doesn't have to go to two stores to buy toilet paper we're changing people's traffic patterns when we can't build roads in places where we've overbuilt. So, Thank you. Lee, it's a major metropolitan area. If we can solve some problems in Memphis, we can solve them, solve them everywhere. What, what are you working on? I'm working on a whole bunch of things. Um, I think criminal justice reform is a really big issue for us. Uh, we've got about 5,000 folks who are in our det detention facilities. The county funds most of that and uh, administers all, all of that. So 5,000 people across our county makes us one of the largest incarcerated populations in an urban county in America. And uh, we're, we're really at near crisis level. We spend you know more than $100 million of local taxpayer dollars just on the detention of people that are waiting for a trial. These are the people that haven't been convicted of anything, uh, but they just don't have have the bail. Uh, most of the folks that we interact with and arrest and detain don't have money for bail and can't bail themselves out. Uh, and so they wait several weeks and so forth. So we're trying to innovate th there. That's some of the toughest work that you'll find because it has a lot of elected officials involved from the prosecutor's office to the sheriff who runs the jail to the courtroom judges who administer the arraignments, um, you know, to the clerks who administer the paperwork. So it's real tough work. We're trying to innovate and trying to use assessment tools and reduce our population and add grand juries so we can process indictments faster, really kind of snap the whip. I can't think of another way of saying it on law enforcement. So they turn in their their officer reports and so forth. So that's a lot. That's a that's hard, unsexy work of government. And I wish we could see that kind of effort at the federal level. Uh, and sometimes people just go for the ribbon cutting or the press announcement. But the but the but the part behind it uh, never really gets done. And so we're working to make sure we do the part behind it. Also also public transit. We're going to invest as a county in public transit here soon. It'll be the first time we do that because that's broadly impactful. We have over twenty thousand riders a day on our public transit system which is small given the size of our community. We clearly have room to demand to expand to 40,000 riders a day, but that takes new investment and a new way of thinking, so we're working on that. Uh, and uh, and also sprawl. I mean, Memphis is you know huge, spread out all over the place. I say Memphis because that's our biggest city in the county. Spread out all over the place, and we've got to do something to, to uh, reorient and think about density. Uh, and so one of the things the county's going to do is get out of the sewer business because the county was building sewer infrastructure all over the place, outlying areas, 
encouraging people to move to those outlying areas. It would cost us tens of millions of dollars to build the sewer infrastructure, and then people would move out there to escape city of Memphis taxes. Uh, and we've got more sprawl, so we've said we're not building in any sewer infrastructure anymore. No more sewers. <laughs> That's the end of that. Uh, and hopefully that'll encourage people to, you know, think about where, where, where they'll move. The development will hopefully, you know, kind of move a little bit closer, closer to our urban core. If we can do some of those things, then we'll grow. We've been shrinking too much, but we'll grow if we can, you know, increase density, increase public transit. Those are the kind of things that are calling cards for the young people that are looking for places to move to. Right. It's so interesting because people talk about, oh, we'll do this urban planning initiative. We'll try this. We'll try that. But it does come down to things like sewer policy. Right? Don't like, build the roads like, or the like, sewers. Yeah, that, <laughs> and it'll uh, happen. That, that, uh, <laughs> that can actually change, change mm-hmm. land planning as much as, um, you know, fancy architectural designs and standards and everything else. Andrea? So um, you might have heard in Norfolk we have some flooding issues. Uh, we're actually second only to New Orleans in terms of flood risk. We also have the largest naval base in the world there, uh, the second busiest port on the East Coast, uh, the North American headquarters for NATO, um, and a lot of water. Uh, so we are sinking. We have subsidence issues as well as uh, uh, sea level rise as a result of climate change. And we're predicting about a foot and a half of increased water by 20, um, 2050. And um, uh, by 2080, about three feet, and by 2100, four to six feet of water. So uh, we have been working on climate change adaptation, which says basically climate change is coming. For us, it's in the form of of flooding. Um, How do we adapt to that? Um, And that means creating new plans for stormwater, uh, for gray infrastructure, for green infrastructure, trying to work with our partners in the Navy, working on a regional basis. But the other thing that I've really been pushing on is now addressing climate change mitigation. So how can we as uh, citizens, even though Norfolk's only 250,000 people, how do we affect uh, our children's and our grandchildren's life and future in this city by reducing our carbon footprint, by becoming more energy efficient, and also reducing our, our our expenses as a result too. Um, but so really starting to look at um, a renewable energy portfolio, uh, putting solar on our municipal buildings and our schools. What are we doing with electric vehicles? How do we increase public transit? Um, we also have a new zoning code that we passed last year, much to the chagrin of our local builders, because it's going to cost more because we have to elevate our houses and our buildings higher. And we also have to, uh, we're encouraging um, by through a resilience quotient in our building code to um, require builders to have things like um, um, something to, for plugging in uh, uh, solar or for plugging in um, your uh generator, et cetera. So we're doing that sort of thing. But, you know, this is not getting done at the federal level. And if you take all the states and the cities and the work that we're doing with the global covenant of mayors, um, we think we're really going to start to make a change. But it's it's a long slug. So I drive a fully electric vehicle now, which is awesome. Um, unfortunately, that's not going to change the flooding that I have on my streets on a sunny day, probably two or three times a month next year. I'm doing it for my kids and for my grandkids. Can I ask, you know, um, sort of your, your Norfolk is not San Francisco or, you know, some uh, liberal bastion. How has the flooding changed the way that people view climate change? Have you seen a shift or are, is, are you reaching a tipping point where people are, are recognizing the potential impacts and costs? Like, or is it still just, I just, my street shouldn't flood 
make a dope flat. So five years ago, um, we couldn't even say the term sea level rise uh, in the state government. It, now it was called recurrent flooding. So now we can say sea level rise. Uh, we can no longer, we can't still say climate change, unfortunately, at the state level. We can say it in Norfolk. We tend to be a more progressive city in the region of 1.7 million. But I will tell you, our neighboring city, Virginia Beach, which is 450,000, largest city in the state, they got they got smacked by Hurricane Matthew. And they had a lot of damage to a lot of homes that weren't even in a floodplain similar to Houston. Now, all of a sudden, all the conservative folks in Virginia Beach who typically would never talk about sea level rise, didn't care about flooding, now they're all concerned. So when it hits home, it really changes the perspective. And now people are realizing this is not a future problem. This is a now problem. Lee, are you seeing uh, impacts of climate change in in Shelby County, and and how do you how do you address that? I don't know if we're seeing impacts. Uh, it's not driving a conversation. I mean, I think there are climate and conservation issues that people care about. I mean, water quality is the biggest one. So we've had a you know, pretty consistent conversation around water quality. Memphis sits atop a of an aquifer uh, with really pristine water. It's one of the things we're most proud of, and sometimes that's put in danger. And so trying to figure out how to make sure that people can't tap our aquifer and particularly put contaminants there. Uh, TVA has a, a big presence in our community and would love to tap, <laughs> tap directly, but but, you know, we have the Groundwater Quality Control Board under Shelby County government. And so we rewrote the rules uh, to make sure that that would be highly unlikely, that they would not get a permit in order to do that. So we're always struggling with those things. I would say just overall on climate change that I think there is an, uh, there's an expectation that I have, have, you know, that in 10 years, 15 years, it'll be the number one issue, Republican or Democrat. So right now, I think you're, you know, right, we're pussyfooting around it. And, you know, people are saying, oh, I don't know if it's an issue and whether we should talk about it and taking positions. It will be the, it will be one of the only things people talk about Republican or Democrat uh, very, very soon. It'll be the top issue that people are asked about in every campaign. Uh, and we're, we're, we're getting real close to, to there because, you know, obviously the next generation is coming of age and the effects are becoming more and more um, obvious uh, to all. So um, I wish we could get there sooner, but we will get there very, very soon. I imagine a couple of hot summers, uh, hotter, hotter summers in Memphis uh, will get people's That's attention. That's right. And in smaller towns, you know, like Oxford, it, it doesn't rise to the top of the list of things that we are working on as often. But our public transportation system has made a huge difference in the number of cars that we have on the road. In a small town of 25,000, we have 20,000 students at the university. In 2008, 2009, we started a public transportation system, had 130. 32,000 passengers that year. This past year, we carried more than 1.6 million passengers. So that's that many trips from A to B that didn't happen in a car. And so it has really taken off. And so we are making strides in ways that um, affect our environment, but um, it doesn't rise to the top of our list as often in a small town. That's that's actually remarkable. That must have both impacts on... the environment, obviously, but also it quality does. of life. Not quality having, of life not and our traffic, traffic issues, our infrastructure issues. So, mm-hmm. What was the secret to... Well, your friend more. Richard Howarth uh-huh. was really one of the the leaders in that push, and we we just decided that we have overbuilt for so long, and we have these narrow city streets. We have students who all bring a car. The university was not required. We've asked them to say that freshmen can't bring a car and different things to affect that, and they weren't willing to do it. And so the city and university partnered to do it. Our county is still not a part of that, but we just annexed. Oxford was 16 square 
square miles, we just added an additional 10 square miles and in hopes of having some more affordable developments, both housing and commercial developments. But um, I believe now is when we'll see the county get involved in our public transportation. You can't always build affordable housing on the transportation line. You've got to take the transportation line to the public housing and affordable housing. So I think you'll see it transferring to the county. Lee? I was just going to, can I add something just about transportation? Because at least in my community, we're about to see a real sea change in the next 20, 25 years. So remember, Shelby County, Memphis is the home of the Federal Express. So we're, you know, we're heavily dependent on logistics and distribution and trucking uh, and that kind of industry. And, and I think everybody expects in the next 20, 25 years, most cars uh, will be autonomous, or at least most of the trucks we have will be autonomous. Uh, and so that's going to eliminate a lot of high paying trucking and distribution jobs we have in Memphis right now. And it's going to make us completely change our approach to so many things. And I think all local governments across America, once you have more than 50% of cars that are autonomous, uh, that's going to change how we have to do roads, how we have to plan, uh, parking, everything will change there. Uh, so we're about to gear up to have more serious discussions around what does that mean when all the trucking jobs are eliminated and how do we prepare for that given that we're the home of FedEx. FedEx is right now rolling out you know, robots on our streets to distribute packages uh, in Memphis. And um, so it's, it's really taking hold, hold fast. And so the, the conversation right now is how do we train those truckers to become uh, pilots, uh, drone pilots, you know, because even when those trucks are autonomous, they still have to get into the lane. And so we want somebody to be able to get them into the lane and then go back and pilot another truck into the lane. Uh, and so it's really kind of a, it's a, it's a land drone pilot curriculum trying to figure out how you get people interested in becoming land drone pilots, because there's still a job to do because those trucks got to get there, right? They've got to unload, and then get back into action. Uh, but you know, how do you get there? And uh, are you planning for that? Because it is going to be a complete disruptor very soon. So tell me about uh, just coming back to that. Tell me about how, what that conversation's like. Because sort of, it's sort of like climate change, where people it doesn't people don't really think about it, and then all of a sudden their roads flooded. They're seeing storms. They're seeing you know increased weather, sea level rise, and now it's a reality. This is another storm that's coming. Uh, for for many of us, as as the workforce changes, so how how do how are you talking to your citizens about this? Jim? Right, right now we're in the early stages, so I think there's just fear to tell you the truth uh, about what this means and how fast this could all happen, um, because distribution is getting ready to change, and that's at the heart of Shelby County and, and at the heart of Memphis. I mean, we had a recent scare. Um, and we may have it again because Amazon, one of the largest companies in the world, and you know, obviously um, Jeff Bezos, there was some discussion that he might take over Federal Express. It is a package company. And, and in that environment, being able to distribute those packages is an important ingredient. And the best way for them to distribute those packages may be to take over the biggest distrib distributor there is, which is Federal Express. And so if Amazon disrupts, takes over Federal Express, then that is probably uh, a dangerous thing for Memphis. It could all work out, but we don't know. So the conversations right now are, we are very afraid because we're a community of 950,000, but we have 200,000 in poverty. So we're a community with real challenges and our biggest, largest employer uh, is go undergoing a real change. It was a stable brick and mortar uh, with lots of credibility, but maybe it's an Amazon subsidiary in the future, uh, or maybe it eliminates all the trucking and you know trucking and package delivery jobs in the future. And by the way, I, I get scared when I see an Amazon truck on our streets now, and we have Amazon package delivery trucks now on our streets. That's scary because I just don't know what's next. Yeah. 
So I, I think this is an interesting conversation because as, as local leaders, and I guess also the state and federal level, but we really need to be thinking about not only those potholes and making sure we have money for the school buses, but where is our economy going and how do we train the workforce for the future and what's that going to look like? So getting back to climate change and flooding, what we're trying to do is create a blue economy and a green economy. And we're trying to take our, our challenge and make it the opportunity. We have a, a federal grant that we received for a, a flood mitigation um, uh, example project for two neighborhoods, but five million of that we are set aside. We have something called the Rise Accelerator, where we're doing challenge grants, where we're trying to identify, cultivate engineering solutions to become the coastal community of the future, with the idea of monetizing them and creating a new business sector around that. Um, things like road sensors that can help um, uh, move traffic to not flooded streets, um, using AI um, to try and figure out where do we put our infrastructure dollars and the right places there. Um, I had a, a meeting this week with somebody who has an idea for um, floating multifamily homes. Um, so if you can think of that, that, apparently they're doing them in Sweden. So, you know, if, if, if we're going to have that much water, how do we address that in the future as well? We're looking at offshore wind. Uh, Virginia has the opportunity to become the, uh, the supply chain for the entire east coast of offshore wind, and that could potentially produce 10 to 14,000 jobs. So how do we take what we have currently? How do we take those skills and move it into something else? The future of work. What is it? Um, and it's scary, but how do we work um, at the government, the school, and the business community all together brainstorming on what workforce development needs there are? And can you do this as the federal government goes in the opposite direction? I mean, this is the, the leaving, asking local communities to solve climate change and the future of work and job retraining and global economic forces is, um, that's a lot in addition to just keeping clean water coming in and dirty water going out and the trash getting picked up uh, and potholes getting fixed. So um, what are you seeing at least at your state levels and maybe at the federal level that 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 is hopeful? And then what are you seeing that's a real challenge? I don't see a lot at the federal level that's hopeful. I'm, you know, But I think at some point we are going to need, to, at the federal level, we're going to need them to really drive a conversation around the future of work because a lot of jobs are going to be eliminated. Um, but there's still going to be wealth out there. There'll still be wealth. There'll still be opportunity to make sure that families have opportunity and, and so forth, uh, an opportunity to participate in their community and in the economy. But jobs and the, the nature of them are going to change. Uh, at the local level, I'm hopeful because I think there are a lot of people on the same page. A lot of people are now really on the same page that workforce development is very important. So, you know, when I entered public office eight years ago, um, economic development meant one thing. It meant tax breaks and corporate subsidies. I think right now economic development is sort of that the language of it is broadening. And now people are talking a lot more about workforce. And so that's really good. And that's interesting because when we talk about workforce, that automatically leads to a conversation around are, are your um, citizens getting the skills that will make them desirable to employers. And everybody knows the nature of that is changing real fast. And so we've got community colleges thinking about workforce, thinking about how they answer the conversation, how they talk to Shelby County government, how they talk to the state, you know, and so forth, how they retrain adults, how adults get an opportunity to, to get training, how ex-offenders when they leave prison get opportunity to get training and get new skills. So the fact that now we're talking about workforce a lot at the local and state level is really encouraging. And uh, I wish I had a kind word to say about what's happening in D.C., I can't think of any. <laughs> well, we um, at a local level are finding ways to solve our own problems, unfortunately. A lot of the times when we are seeking state and federal dollars to help, um, at the state level in Mississippi, Oxford is kind of a bubble. 
we are a very thriving community in a relatively poor state and so uh, it is we are constantly victims of our own success i say often people look and say oh y'all are listed as the best small town in america to live in you've got the most beautiful town square the most gorgeous college campus but they miss the part where we have 25,000 taxpayers we have about 60,000 people on a regular day 100,000 on a non-event weekend and 2 to 250,000 people on a special event weekend and so the infrastructure costs that um, it takes water sewer and roads to take care of that number of people is certainly a challenge we have gotten creative in doing tax increment financing roads and things like that to be able to fund on Mississippi Department of Transportation roadways not even on local roadways on state highways we are solving those problems at a local level which is frustrating to say the least but um, you know growth is a challenge it's a good problem it presents a lot of growing pains and so we're trying to tackle those at a local level without a lot of help from our state government unfortunately and you're a you're a blue dot in a in a red state that's right that's Uh, right which makes it a challenge at at our government level at our state level it makes it a great challenge so do you do you run into obstacles just because of the voting preferences of your uh, <laughs> yes. your constituents? Yes. yes, yes, we do. Um, it has been interesting. It has taken me two years of really working with our state leaders to see, you know, everything's so polarized. You, you, you lose sight of who the person is because you just look at the letter. And so it has taken me two years to break down barriers at our state level um, to say, hey, look, we're all trying to make Mississippi better. We are all trying to make our communities better and an investment in Oxford Mississippi is not an investment in a Democrat mayor it's an investment in 25,000 people who live there and work there and Oxford has an unemployment rate of three percent so you know economic development looks very different for us we can't go I mean large industries aren't looking to locate in a community that has an unemployment rate of three percent but we have a lot of people who are underemployed a lot of folks who work in the hospitality industry tourism industry who can't afford then to live in our community because the pay scale is so low. So uh, very quickly to wrap it up, tell folks something that that they that they maybe they think they know about being a mayor or on city council, but uh, but is not accurate or something something they don't know about about what your day to day life's like uh, that uh, that that would be helpful if they did. Well, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind, I'm sure I'll think of 10 things once I pass the microphone, but the the first thing that comes to my mind, probably what was the most surprising to me after having served on the council, but not being the mayor, the one thing that I didn't realize is how much time is spent with personnel issues when you are basically the CEO of the community. I have 524 employees and it takes a lot of time if you want to motivate your team. And I am very focused on, we just raised our minimum wage to $13 an hour for our city employees, which I'm very proud of. And we are really trying to find ways to help people find career paths rather than just jobs. And so that's, I spent a lot of time on that. And that was one of the unexpected things that um, I hadn't really thought about. So yeah, that's a, that's a great an insight. Important one. Yeah, absolutely. That's Lee? a real tough question. Yeah. I think um, biggest surprise, because I was in the state Senate. So, you know, legislative branch, now the executive branch and executive branches more fun <laughs> I don't know I think the biggest surprise to me was just the number of contracts so Shelby County's a big 
government, big local government, 5,000 employees and, you know, big, huge budget. So that ends up meaning that there are a lot of things that need to be funded. And so I probably sign 20, 25 contracts a day at least. Um, so there is a, just a lot of paperwork and it is a constant process and you can't fall behind because the machinery kind of grinds down. And maybe I could give the signatory authority to someone else, but we haven't worked out all that out yet. So, you know, I end up signing just a lot of documents and that was the biggest surprise. The moment you do, there'll be some bad contract. <laughs> you you got to get it right back again anyway. Exactly. So I think uh, Norfolk's a little different than the other um, two municipalities in that we are a council manager form of government, and we are actually elected in a, uh, and supposed to serve in a part-time basis. Um, so I have I represent half of the city for about so about 125 citizens, 125,000 citizens, and I um, I don't have a staff. I I my staff is called Andrea McClellan, and she answers all her own emails, phone calls, text messages, does her own scheduling, all of her own social media writes her speeches, schedules her travel. So um, I think people just think I have people who do that for me, but I do that for me and I'm still at the grocery store buying the, the toilet paper for the family. So um, it's it's one of those things that people just don't realize the magnitude of it. And, and there are times when I pick up the phone and people say, you're answering your own phone? And I say, well, yeah, that's what I do. Uh, so it's, it's sort of an interesting place to be. But again, going back to being an entrepreneur where you take out your own trash and, and you're also, you know, whining and dining investors, that's sort of my life, daily life as it is. You know, it's, it's really fun for some of the ribbon cuttings. And I was with the Supreme Allied Commander at his house for dinner of NATO on Sunday night, which is really swanky. Um, and then, you know, I was up until midnight last night answering emails and making a Facebook post. So That is a uh, really good insight insight into the realities of uh, local government. So I want to thank our audience for coming out today. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for listening to an honorable profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. Keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we're keeping things honorable, no tax dollars were used to the making of this podcast. So thank you, everyone. And uh, it's been it's been great.